hear this reading, contemporary reading, poem called The Swan by Rainer Maria Rilke. This laboring of ours with all that remains undone, as if still bound to it, is like the lumbering gate of the swan. And then our dying, releasing ourselves from the very ground on which we stood, is like the way he hesitantly lowers himself into the water. It gently receives him, and gladly yielding flows back beneath him, as wave follows wave, while he, now wholly serene and sure, with regal composure, allows himself to glide. Have you ever awoken and found yourself in the midst of the dark wood? You wake up one day and you realize the career that has provided a healthy paycheck for years has also been sucking the life out of you. Your marriage that was supposed to last forever is falling apart around you. A bad test result at the doctor, a middle-of-the-night phone call, no matter how hard you try, you just can't feel happy. No matter how hard you try, you find it hard to believe anymore in yourself, in God. Maybe everything around you seems fine. There's no tragedy, no trouble. All is going well, it seems, and yet, and yet you, still, you still feel like you're sinking. You don't know why. You've been juggling life so much, you're just exhausted. Tired of being something that's not fully you. Tired of living your life for other people. Maybe all the things you believed in about God and yourself are not really true. And waking up to this new truth has you feeling like you're sinking, like the whole world is crashing on top of you like waves on the sea. The Middle Ages Italian poet Dante wrote about these times of life. In his famous work, The Divine Comedy, he wrote a now famous line, In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Have you ever awoken in the middle of life in a dark wood? But what is this place we speak of, really. For Dante, the dark wood was a place of confusion, emptiness, and stumbling that we enter into as humans as punishment for our sin. In the Divine Comedy, his now famous allegorical poem, he imagines the afterlife and takes readers literally on a tour of hell as he saw it, what he calls the Inferno. Most of our modern imagery of hell and Satan comes from Dante's imagination, not from scripture. And dark wood is the name that he gives for the entrance to the inferno. Sometimes it feels like the dark wood is leading us right into the very pits of hell. But I think Dante gets the dark wood wrong. What if the dark wood is not a place we go on a journey away from God, but what if it's the very place where God is best found? 
Now, our guide today into the dark wood is the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Like most dark wood experiences, Jesus did not choose to enter the wilderness. But after his baptism, Luke tells us that right away the Holy Spirit leads him there. And while he's there for 40 days, he is tempted by the devil. Now, the devil in my Bible is not capitalized because in the original language, it's not really referring to Satan as pictured in Dante's version of hell, but to a devil. It could be any devil that would tempt us to cheat on life. This wilderness devil comes to Jesus in a desperate time and sends him three temptations to turn stones into bread, to worship the devil, and be given all the kingdoms of this world, and then to wow the world into following him by throwing himself from the pinnacle of the temple only to be caught by an angelic parachute. Now, they number three temptations, but really they're all just one big temptation, all the same, the temptation of certainty. See, before Jesus begins his ministry, the Spirit says, you must go into the wilderness. And so the Spirit drives Jesus there, the language says, drives Jesus into the wilderness, this place of uncertainty, of desolation, where he doesn't know where his next meal will come from or if he will ever come out alive. This place of unknowing, of upheaval, this is where Jesus will begin his ministry. This is where he must be at this point of life. And at every turn along the way, the devil tries to convince him otherwise. Why worry about your next meal, Jesus, when you can just turn stones into bread? Why engage in a cosmic fight against injustice and evil if in just one act of worship you could cause all the devils of this world to lay down their power? Why die on a cross, Jesus, to win humanity by love when you could throw yourself off a temple and be caught by angels and convince them of your power? The devil offers Jesus certainty, a way out of the wilderness, a way to avoid the cross, to get rid of the doubt and the questions, the easy path of ministry. But this is not the way the Spirit is leading. Jesus' ministry must begin in the wilderness. Now I wonder how many of us find ourselves resisting the spirits driving in our own life, taking instead the easy way out. We crave firm foundations under our feet. We can't handle the mystery of the wilderness. We need the certainty that comes from knowing all the answers and knowing what turn to take next in life. Living in certainty, well, it works until it doesn't. Eventually, you find a question that doesn't have an easy answer. Life sends you a devil that knocks you down for the count. And the certainty you thought your life was built upon begins to crumble beneath you. But then, and only then, when certainty is gone, that's when you learn to trust. Jesus was able to resist the devils that came his way, not because he had certainty, but because he had trust. He trusted That the God, the spirit that sent him there would protect him. That the word on which he was building his life, the word of God, would give him a way out. See, certainty and trust, they don't go together. When you're certain about your foundation, you don't need to trust in anything or anyone. But when all that you, 
when all that you rely on in life begins to crumble beneath you, when, you, when your feet can't stand firmly on the ground anymore, it's then that you learn to trust. But it's scary, isn't it? Trust is scary because you don't ultimately know. And sometimes we're too scared to even risk it, so we never live. We're like that swan in the poem we read. On the firmness of the ground, a swan is kind of awkward, waddling around, trying to walk slowly, gating on the ground. He can't get very far. And a lot of us live our lives in that awkwardness. But how does the swan cure it? Not by beating himself on the back, not by trying harder to walk faster, by organizing himself better, by going to the gym and exercising, and then he can walk on the ground better. No. The swan cures it by flying to the water, landing in the water where he belongs. And then the poet says he begins to glide as wave upon wave comes. He glides upon it because that is where he belongs. There the water gently receives him and gladly yielding flows back beneath him as wave follows wave while he now wholly serene and sure with regal Composure, I love that line, regal composure, allows himself to glide. The poet calls this move our dying. It is a death to release ourselves from the ground, the firm ground on which we stand. And yet it's only in dying that we find our place in this world, that we find life. Now, for me, it was my second year of ministry when I began to lose certainty. This year, uh, 2016, marks 10 years. I was counting last night. Uh, 10 years that I've been in full-time ministry of some sort. And I love this life. I wouldn't change it for anything. But there was a time eight years ago when I thought about giving it all up. Years of preparation and college and seminary. I was given all the answers, and I was ready, and then I got a church, and I started working with people, real people, and real questions, and questions came my way I didn't know the answer to. Solutions that I was given in a textbook did not work. People had needs that I could not meet. You're faced with devils that you never thought would come your way, tempting you to things you never thought would be temptations. And I remember sitting in my office on a Thursday afternoon, and instead of finishing the sermon that really needed to be done, I was looking at job postings for other careers. Maybe I should go back to school, get another degree. That'll solve it. When in doubt, get more student debt. Become a teacher. You could help people that way. Be a social worker, right? All the good people or social workers in this world, that's a way to solve things. And it wasn't that I was bad or at what I did or that the people I was ministering to didn't like me. No one was pushing me out of anything. It was that I just wasn't sure I believed what I was speaking of anymore. For my whole life, faith had come easy. I was born into it. All the answers were given to me. But now I didn't know if I believed what I stood up on Sunday and said, that I even believed in the God that I served, and it felt, well, fake. And I was in the dark wood. Within a year from that Thursday, I, I would leave 
congregational ministry, become a full-time community organizer, working for an organization that worked with churches. I was still doing ministry, but I didn't have to speak publicly about faith anymore. I thought if I couldn't save the world with the church, well, then maybe I could save it with politics, right? And you know what? Well, the strangest thing happened. As I stepped away from the church, I began to meet people who were a lot like me, but were serving in churches out of their own free will. They weren't paid to be there. And they trusted. They had this trust in God that God was working through them and doing good through them, that God was making the world a better place through these people. We had to do a lot of reading in this uh, career as an organizer. And one of the books that we were given was a book called Ill Fares the Land by Tony Jude, which really the book itself didn't impact me so much as the quote that he began his book by. And I remember sitting at a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and we just spent about an hour on this quote. The quote's from George Orwell. It says, to see what is in front of one's nose needs constant struggle. Now, think about that. To see what's in front of your nose needs constant struggle. Maybe cross your eyes. It's hard to see what's in front of you. And once I read that, I couldn't get, out of, couldn't get it out of my head because what I was doing was giving up on the struggle. It was too hard. Life, ministry, and faith was hard. But who said speaking about God should ever be easy? How could it? be easy? How could it be simple trying to understand eternal truths? And God may be right in front of us and all around us. Truth may be right here on our nose, but to see it takes constant struggle. To see through the world, the dark woods, to see through the times that come in our life, these wilderness experiences, it takes constant struggle. But really, Really, it's a gift, isn't it? A gift to know that you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have the answers. It's a gift to know that you don't have to know what to say. That I don't know is the greatest gift of all. Yet even though we don't know, God is still there right in front of our nose and still worth trusting. That's why I think Dante gets it all wrong. The dark wood isn't the path to hell. It is the door to God. It is the way to full life, to a God that cannot be contained by what we think we know and understand, a God that we must trust because it's only when we do learn to trust that we can finally let go of all the devils that are holding us back and find our place in the world and glide. Like a swan leaving the awkwardness of land and finding its regal composure as it glides on the water. May our journey into the dark wood lead us to find our place in this world, whatever it is, that place where everything comes together and we can become our fullest self. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, we'll sing the hymn, Come and Find the Quiet Sinner. Number 575. Verses 1 and 2. 